Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. So, we last week entered into a new series where we've been looking at the two books that are really one book, which is Ezra and Nehemiah. In ancient times, they were written and intended to be one book. And so we're looking at the road to renewal that we find in those books. And what we see in Ezra and Nehemiah is it tells us about three waves of return. When Israel was in exile in Babylon, there were three waves of return back to Jerusalem. And each of them was a wave of revival. Three waves of return, revival, led by three groups, groups of leaders. And so last week we were looking at Zerubbabel and Yeshua rebuilding the temple, which was about rebuilding worship. And this week we're looking at Ezra chapter 7 to 10, which is the second wave of return led by the, the, the man who lends his name to the book, Ezra. And so this is about restoring community through scripture, all right? And so this is the second cycle of revival. And really what we want to ask today is how does knowing, living, and teaching scripture lead us into renewal? Last week we were looking at worship leading us into renewal, into revival, and how even though we can't generate revival, we can prepare the ground for God to move and revive us, and we can get in the way of revival. And so this week we're asking, how does scripture lead our community into renewal? All right. And so we're going to read from Ezra chapter seven. And before we get into that main text, we're we're looking at big sections. I'm not going to read you three whole chapters. We're looking at big sections, but I'm going to read you the start of Ezra seven. And before we get into that, we have to be honest. This is a little bit of an obscure passage of the Bible. All right. Put your hand up if Ezra is your just most cherished book of scripture. <laughs> Nobody. Okay. You know, this is, this is not one that you find typically on those little Christian signs in Hobby Lobby and stuff, you know, or on the back of a pack of Testaments, you know, do those still exist? You know, anyway, this is not one of those often quoted portions of scripture. Not even the New Testament quotes it which is interesting, okay? And so you, you know, you would be justified in asking, well, what's the point of studying it then? If it's not as important maybe as, you know, Romans 3 or, or these, these passages that we, that we know and we quote all the time, then what's the point of studying it? Well, I want to give you two very quick reasons. I could do the whole sermon just on this, but two very quick reasons. Number one, Paul the apostle tells Timothy that all scripture has something to teach us. It's useful for, for building up the man of righteousness, the person of righteousness in, in, in their character, in all godliness. And so every part of scripture has something to teach us. But secondly, Jesus himself in that amazing Bible study at the end of the, the, the book of Luke on the road to Emmaus, and he has this Bible study, the resurrected Jesus with the two disciples. And, and he says, it says he showed them in all the prophets and the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so Jesus says, all of scripture not only is useful to you and teaches you something, it teaches you something about me. So all scripture is useful for building us up in godliness, but all scripture also points to Jesus. It's just that some passages we have to work a little harder at seeing how it is that it does that. 
All right? And so Paul and Jesus are telling us all of Scripture uh, is useful and points to Jesus. And you have to ask, well, what Scriptures were Paul and Jesus talking about? They were talking about the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament today. The New Testament didn't exist yet when they were saying those things. And so they're talking about the Old Testament. And so I want you to keep both of those things in mind today. And, and the more I've been studying this text, because honestly, it's been pretty unfamiliar to me too. The more I've gotten into this text, the more I've been convinced God really has something special to say to us as we study this right now in the season that we're in as a church. This is, you know, I'm talking about revival. This is an exciting time to be here with you all, to be part of this church, because I believe God's doing something here. All right? And so, okay, let's read Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, and I'm just going to interject a couple comments as we go along. Starting from verse 1, it says, now after this, which, by the way, is about 60 years after the last part of chapter 6. So this is 60 years after Zerubbabel restored the temple. In the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, so we're in a new regime, yet again, of the Persian Empire. It says, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zechariah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. And you say, was that really necessary? <laughs> Those are the ones you dread getting as, as a reader, you know. Is that really necessary? Yes, because what the writer is doing there in that genealogy is he's, he's connecting Ezra to Moses. Okay? And what he's doing is he's painting Ezra as the new Moses. All right? A new Moses leading a new Exodus. And this is what it says about Ezra. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And so it's very intentionally painting Ezra as a new Moses, leading Israel into a new Exodus. And then as you read on in chapters 7 and 8, it's, it's very careful. It's excellent literature. It's very carefully crafted to evoke as much as possible of the Exodus story from the Torah. All right, so starting verse 7. And there went also up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. Now remember in, in the Exodus story, the, it was the Levites that were carrying the holy vessels and the tabernacle through the wilderness. And so this is, again, referencing back. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which is in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up to Babylonia. And in case the illusion was lost on anybody, it was the first day of the, of the first month that the people of Israel left Egypt in the Exodus. And so, this, you know, this is like starting a political party on July 4th or something. It's a very definite statement trying to evoke the history of the nation. And so, on the first day of the fifth month, he came up to Jerusalem, for the good hand of God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So those are the three things we're actually going to look at. Knowing Scripture, living Scripture, and then teaching Scripture or applying Scripture. How is it that those things have the effect of renewing our community? 
more than any religious practices or customs, God's covenant people rely on his word. And that, when you look at the, the, the ancient world, that was utterly unique. The Jews were the first people of the world to base themselves not, on, not so much on temple worship and, and, and religious customs, but on written scripture. And so the start of the book of Ezra, it references back to Jeremiah 31. We, we can see that in this text. It references back to Jeremiah 31. When you read Jeremiah 31, it's sometimes called the New Covenant Poem. And it's a prophecy of all that would happen when Israel would return to the land out of exile. And it says, mourning will be turned to joy. Justice will be done. And they will once again be the Lord's people. And so you read Ezra chapters 1 to 6 that we looked at last week, and, and, and you might think, well, wow, all of those things happened. You know, the people returned, the temple was rebuilt, the sacrifices are once again being made, the enemies have been overcome, the land is at peace. Everything is complete from Jeremiah's prophecy. And yet, it's not. There was more to that prophecy in Jeremiah 31. None of those things in themselves actually formed the foundation of Israel's covenant. None of those things, as wonderful as they were, actually formed the foundation of Israel's covenant with God. Jeremiah prophesied that there would be a new covenant where what would happen? That he would put his law within them and write it on their hearts. And so Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple and he laid the foundation stone for the worship of God. But then what you see in Ezra is that he's called to rebuild the covenant community. And he does it with the foundation, the foundation stone of scripture. And so he's actually pretty successful at it. Many of the, the scholars, when you look at this time period, they say that, you know, the Jews and Christians, as actually it says in the Quran, uh, they're, they're called the people of the book. And so Jews have always been known as the people of the book and Christians after them. Well, that actually pretty much dates from this period, from Ezra's leadership. Before this time, if you remember the story, they weren't necessarily always a people of the book. You know, King Josiah suddenly rediscovers the law laying in a cupboard somewhere and it's like this, this big deal, like, oh my gosh, we forgot the Bible, <laughs> you know? And so clearly, they had some work on really being a people of the book. Well, Ezra, from that time onwards, the Jews never failed to be a people of the book. In fact, by Jesus' day, they almost kind of were, were too much a people of the book, and they, for, they forgot that God was living and, and could do things that they didn't quite expect. And so... Ezra is being painted as the new Moses, that he's going to restore God's law so that people will know it and live it and teach it. All right? So what does he do? Well, we're told that he set his heart to study Scripture and to know it. Now, when you're in a a church in the stream of Christianity that we're in, you're going to hear all the time, read your Bible— know your Bible, learn your Bible. It's important. You know, every morning have your quiet time. You know, we sing the songs. We do, we do all the stuff. You're going to hear all the time, read your Bible, know it. Why is it important to know your Bible? Well, you could give an individual answer, an answer for you personally, and you could say, well, that's where you're going to find the answers to your life. That's where you're going to encounter God personally and know what his will is for you. And and that's true. 
But I think it's even more important, beyond the individual, it's even more important that we study and know the Bible as a community. Why? Because communities are founded on shared stories. Communities are founded on shared stories. That's true of any type of community that you can think of. It's founded on a shared story. And the story of God's covenant people is scripture. That is the shared foundational story. If you think of, you know, think of America as, as a nation, I mean, what is it? It's an, it's an idea founded on a particular story. So sometimes you'll hear it referred to as a founding myth. You know, it's the idea, it's the story that, that people sign up to and that draws a community together. And you see that with, with every nation, there's a certain, a certain story out of which a nation is formed, a community is formed. And so the story of the covenant community is scripture. Now, if you, if you even think of yourself, just at a personal level, how important your personal story is to answering all the big questions of your life. Without your story, an awareness of your history, of where you come from, of, you don't know who you are, you don't know what your life is contributing to, you don't know what to do, what your direction should be. And so that's true at a personal level, what's even more true at a community level. Because a community can't survive without a shared story. A shared story that binds it together. And so I think this is the point that the book of Ezra is, is making for us in centralizing scripture as, as the, the heart of, of forming and renewing God's people. And it's this, without knowing its story, the covenant community ceases to exist. Without knowing our story, the covenant community ceases to exist. And so what's the reason that we read scripture, we sing scripture, we, we, uh, we preach scripture day in and day out in our community? It's because it's that scripture that is our story that tells us who we are. It tells us our place in the world. It tells us what our purpose is. And so when you observe, and you can see this really in, any, in, the, in the life cycle, the history of any movement, of any community. But, but you can observe it in Christian communities that begin to downplay the importance of the story. That begin to forget and drift away from the importance of the story of Scripture. What happens? That community begins to doubt who it is. That community begins to doubt what it should be doing. And before long, what you see is you begin to doubt whether you really have any reason to exist at all. And so it's sad to see that in churches. You see that all over the place. And that's why this community, this is why you personally, you, you can't, it's not only those things, but you're never going to experience renewal and revival in a community of God's covenant people is, if, if the story is forgotten. Without that story, we don't know who we are. And so, this is my story. This is your story. This is our story without which there is no we. There is no our. I mean, just look at the the variety of people within this room. All right? What in the world reason do we have to be in this room together apart from the shared story of what Jesus has done for us? Right? I mean, there's we, we have people here from... 
you know, every continent of the world, pretty much, <laughs> in terms of heritage. And, and we're only drawn together by that shared story that's in Jesus, that links us to the people of God, the covenant people of God throughout history. And so it makes me think of all the times in Scripture where it tells families, it tells parents, teach this to your kids. Because parents, I'm a, you know, I'm a parent like, like many in this room, but many of us are spiritual parents as well, involved in the raising up of the children of this community. And the question is, number one, do we know the story ourselves? But then secondly, because you can't, you can't pass it on if you don't know it. But then the question is, okay, I might be full of the story myself. I might know scripture and, and you know, be in the word myself. But am I passing it on? Because without the passing of the story, our children don't know who they are. They, don't know, they won't know that they're part of the covenant people. They want, you know, sometimes in, in, modern, you know, in the modern world, we can have this idea that we are these kind of like standalone human beings that have no connection to the past because all the people in the past were ignorant and, and, you know, they didn't have the technology and the understanding of the world that we do. And so we're modern people and we're just blazing into the future and we don't need the past. Well, you know, that's a recipe for disaster. There's a story that the Greeks told Oedipus Rex. And I'll just stop there. But Oedipus ends up killing his own parents because he doesn't know that they're parents because he's forgotten who he is. And so, why did I even mention that? But... <laughs> The question is, are we passing it on to our kids, not simply because it's the right thing to do, and I know, well, I'm a Christian, and I should be having quiet time with my kids, and that kind of stuff. And that stuff's hard, guys. I get it. All right? But the question is, if I'm not doing that as a parent, how are my kids going to absorb that story and understand who they are? Understand that they're part of not just this thing that happens on a Sunday morning, but they're part of millennia of God's history of a people that he's brought together and redeemed and given a purpose and a mission in the world. We can't know that apart from the story. And so it's not just about making good little boys and girls. It's, so, it's, it's about making called little boys and girls. Do you know the story? Um, and are we teaching our kids in such a way that it, it, they're able to make sense of who they are within the story because here's the thing, it's not as if otherwise you're just in a void. No, there's all sorts of stories out there. There's all sorts of founding myths that will tell you, this is who you are, this is where you fit, this is your meaning and purpose in life. And so if you're not absorbing the story of God's people in Scripture, you are in a story, you are absorbing a story, it's just a question of which one it is. And so what you see in Ezra's calling is that he was to learn the story, he was to know it, not just for his own sake, but for the sake of the community, but not only to know it, but to do it, all right? Because the sake of knowing, the, 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 the importance of knowing the story is not just for historical curiosity. I'm a historian. I love history. I love knowing random useless facts about the past. However, that's not the importance of learning the story of Scripture, because it's not just for historical knowledge, it is for living. It is to make us wise to be good at life and godliness. And so what do you see Ezra doing? 
As you read on in the story, I wish we had time to read, you know, the, the whole of these passages, but that's going to be your homework. Go back and read Ezra, the rest of 7, 8, 9, and 10. So he not only tells the story of Scripture, he reenacts it. All right, so in chapter 8, Ezra sets off for Babylon with some of the people, with the Levites and the, the, the worshipers and all that, and he, he reenacts the story of the Exodus. Now with a new generation of of freed slaves coming out of Babylon. And so he leaves for Jerusalem and he stops at the river and he camps just as Joshua did as he was, he paused before going into the, the, the promised land. But he, he stops at the camp and he says, oh no, we didn't bring any Levites. So he goes back and gets the Levites because that's what they did in the Exodus. And he had to reenact everything that they did in the Exodus. And so every step of the way along the journey, he's, he's meticulous in not just remembering, but reenacting what was done in the story of the Exodus. Well, why, you would ask, what's the importance of reenacting this story of the Exodus? Well, this is the central story of Scripture, all right? You can't understand the whole Bible without the story of the Exodus. You can't understand what Jesus did without the story of the Exodus, you know, from a, from a, uh, a biblical point of view. It teaches us how the biblical authors thought. So the Exodus was the foundational story of Israel as a people. The, the, the biblical authors, what they're doing all the way through Scripture is they're retelling the story of the Exodus. It's the same patterns over and over again. Israel continuing, the people of God continuing to fall into slavery of different kinds, slavery to sin, and God continuing to be faithful to set them free. And it's all pointing forward to the great exodus, the new and better exodus, led by a new and better Moses who would set the people free from slavery to sin, never to return. And so it's really always this one story being retold and retold. It's the same story from Genesis onwards, which is why I titled this message The Never-Ending Story. It's a story that's constantly repeating through Scripture and constantly repeating through the life of God's people. And so you have to get your head into thinking in that story mode to understand what the biblical authors were doing. You have to get into that to understand what the New Testament writers were doing because they see Jesus as also repeating that story. And, and they had to see it that way. Jesus understood himself to be repeating that same story and yet fulfilling it. And so what you can see is that it's not only every generation of the covenant community that has to know the story and to live the story, to to reenact it. Each generation is called to live the covenant story. So, So how do we do that in the present day? Because we're not going out there and taking treks through the wilderness with a bunch of Levites and a tent and some golden vessels, right? That's not how we do it. How do we do it as God's covenant people today? Well, what do you think we did with this bread and this wine? We are reenacting the greatest Passover, the fulfillment of the Passover in Jesus. Jesus himself was our great Passover lamb. He died on Passover to take away the sins of the world. Right? And so every time that we take the bread, we take the wine or the juice, just as Jesus said, we are remembering, we're we're remembering, we're reenacting that story. And what it is, the reason that it's so important in the life of the church is that every time we do that, we are declaring we are part of everything we read in Scripture. 
We are part of that same history of salvation. Every time you do that, what you're doing is not through words, but through, through an act, which is why it's, it, it's, it's a sacrament. You're, you're declaring, I am part of the covenant people. I am part of those same people that God set free from Egypt by the blood of a lamb. I am part of those same people, and Jesus is my lamb. And so we're reenacting the story. And, the, you know, that, that, that shows you just how important it is to understand. The church did not replace Israel. The church is an extension of Israel. Israel didn't disappear and the church took its place. No, the, Israel expanded to include Gentiles in every tribe and tongue and nation. And we are part of that same story. And so each of us, as we read scripture, we're invited to see ourselves in that text, to situate yourself within the story, to find your identity in it. Now, I I get it. We have to work pretty hard to do that because, you know, it, it, it takes work to enter into the story, to enter into that way of thinking. But without doing that, we have no idea who we are or where we're going. And so the world is full of competing stories, like we already said. Each new setting, each new generation encounters new stories that seek to answer all the questions of your life. When Israel was taken into Babylon, what did they do? They changed their names to names that reflected their gods. They, they, they inserted them into their ritual practices. What is that? That's building a communal sense through these ritual stories. So Babylon had a certain story that was, that was competing for, for that identity. Persia then comes in and they give a different story. And so the same thing would happen today. Every single generation faces these new, these new stories. So what do we do? If we don't know our story, it's going to be shaped for us. All right? And so every generation has to go through this cycle of returning as a community, rebuilding once again for that new generation, that sense of identity within that story. And, and what else, when, when, it, when we do that, when we return, when we return to that foundation of scripture, what else could it bring but renewal then? It brings new life because it's returning to the source of our, uh, of our community. And so it puts us in touch with who we are. It places us in God's story. And so Ezra, he's set up as this, this amazing example this model to follow because he does that. He studies it diligently. He knows it. He not only knows it, but he reenacts it. He does it. And, and it has the effect of restoring his community. But here's the thing. Okay, so you read on chapter 9. Now, some of you are going to read this, and you're going to be absolutely shocked, all right, at what happens in, in chapters 9 and 10. Is anyone familiar with what happens in chapter 9 and 10? Okay, uh, Rex is because he's taught this before. So, you know, Picture Ezra, he's got this retinue of, of all these Levites and people, and they're marching towards Jerusalem. You know, they got the flags waving there. They're, they're, you know, victoriously returning. And he sets foot in Jerusalem, and the leaders of the city, they come up to Ezra and they say, look, Ezra, you know, glad you're here. Welcome. You know, congratulations. We just got to let you know, the people are in all sorts of sin, especially the leaders. Because what's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what happened is, Ezra, the leaders, they, they kind of got entangled into some relationships with the local people, and they've, they've intermarried with these other, these other people in the area, 
and they've started mixing worship up with these other gods, you know, so just so you know. And <laughs> Ezra rips his, his, his clothes, he tears his hair out, he falls on the floor, and he starts weeping and, and, and screaming in, in mourning, all right? And so you say, well, Ezra, what's the big deal, man? <laughs> like, you know, didn't Moses marry a Midianite? Didn't Joseph marry an Egyptian? Wasn't David married to foreign wives? Wasn't, didn't Abraham even have a foreign wife? And so the law didn't specifically bit marrying people of other nationalities. It really focuses on marrying people of other faiths, of other, other, other worship. And so Ezra's put in this position where, okay, he knows the scripture, he lives the scripture, but now he's got to apply the scripture in a situation that scripture doesn't necessarily specifically talk about. Yeah? So he's forced to do some creative application, you might say. Now, if you read on the story, the solution it was a, is a pretty shocking one because what he says is all the foreign wives divorce them and send them away. <laughs> and you say, Ian, goodness, it's not very uplifting. I thought you were talking about revival. <laughs> now, you know, before you head out to the courthouse, we got to point out when you read the New Testament, Christians are expressly forbidden to do this, okay? Jesus has this incredibly high view of marriage. Paul tells us if you find yourself in an, an, a, a marriage with an unbeliever, do not leave them. If they're willing to live with you, don't leave them because who knows, you might win them over. He also says, don't enter into a marriage unknowingly with an unbeliever. Why? Because, you know, if your heart is set on Jesus— then you're going two different directions if the other person is also not set on that one thing. All right? And so that, it, it, what happens is it, it tears your heart apart. So what does this have to do with us? <laughs> because the, the question that it raises is, what does the church do when we encounter threatening situations that aren't directly given an answer to in Scripture? Well, the one thing we shouldn't do is try and treat the Bible just as a, a textbook of, of answers. All right, because that's not the intention. And you look at Ezra and you see what he did and his solution, it's actually somewhat debatable whether he did the right thing. There is a debate about that. But Ezra's solution may have been the right thing in his situation, but it's certainly not the right thing in our situation. And so if we simply mimic him, and you could take a lot of examples in scripture, if you simply mimic what's done, even if it's the right thing in scripture, if you just copy it, it's going to be completely wrong for now. Okay, and so as we as we know the word and we seek to live it, here's the last point that each generation must learn how to creatively apply it to the story. All right, so the reason that this intermarriage was 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 so threatening it wasn't it wasn't a ethnic religious thing. This was sorry, it wasn't an ethnic you know racial thing. This was a religious thing. They were worshiping foreign gods. That was the threat. And that was exactly the sin that had sent Israel into exile in the first place. So no wonder Ezra's tearing his hair out, because it's like, really, again? You know? So every single generation of the covenant community is, is tempted to begin aligning itself and making covenant with influences that will rip its heart apart, that will divide our allegiance and our, and our, and our love. And so 
they begin to draw us towards other gods. Every single generation in every place is going to face that same attraction. And so it's the job of the community, because what happens is Ezra is knowing the law, he's teaching the law, but actually the response comes out of the community. Ezra doesn't say, this is what you all should do. It comes out of the community. And so what that teaches us, I think, is that it's the job, not just of an individual Christian to learn and apply the scripture, you do that in the context of community. We discern it. You can't learn how to faithfully live out the story except as part of a community that's living that story. That's the danger of being, you know, a Lone Ranger Christian. We need to be in the community to discern how to faithfully live it out because it's not simply mimicking the answers of the past. All right? Francis Schaeffer used to say that the problem with so many, so much Christian discipleship is not that we don't know the answers, it's that we don't even know the questions. So we're out there, you know, spouting answers out, but we're, we're, we're answering questions that no one's asking <laughs> sometimes. And so the application of the covenant story, it can only happen in the context of community. That's how our community thrives, not only survives, but thrives in each generation. That's how we find new life. And so I'm going to, I want to bring this to a close and invite the, the, the worship team back up. And we're going to head into another sacrament that tells the story of scripture visually, which is baptism. All right. And so as they're doing that, I'm going to sneak in one little section here. It's interesting that Ezra has the reaction that he does, even though really it's only a very small amount of people that were involved in this sin. We find out later it's about a hundred people. So that's half of 1% of the whole community. And yet Ezra repents on behalf of the whole community. And what that tells us is, you know, there's no such thing as just an individual sin. Our, our individual sin affects the community. And what it does is it is inhibits God being able to move. It inhibits revival within the community. And so what you see in the history of revivals through scripture, in the history of revival through, through the church, is that part of that is this mass turning back to God. This mass repentance before God that draws us back to his heart. And so I want to ask these questions for us to reflect on as a community. What influences may we have allowed into our lives that have the effect of drawing our hearts away from God? And it might not be bad things per se. What are the influences that are beginning to, to, to draw our hearts? What competing stories are vying to define us apart from scripture? And there's, there's some really strong ones out there everyone. And I told you that every part of scripture somehow points to Jesus. And we've already seen that in how Jesus is the new Exodus. But we see this also in how, you know, Ezra does his absolute best. And the people, they, 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 you know, have this radical response and they, they turn back to God. And yet the depressing thing is the very next section in the book of Nehemiah, they're doing the same thing again. The same thing again. And what that points us to is these wonderful revivals, as much as, you know, they were an incredible time in the story of Israel, they're pointing forward to Jesus as the true and faithful husband who was never unfaithful to his bride, the church, and who gave himself for the church. And so... Just as we were retelling the story of the Exodus in, in, in communion in the Passover, you guys can begin playing. In baptism, 
What are we doing? Pastor Bob preached the message a couple weeks ago called a, a marriage or a wedding in water. And one of the things that we're reenacting as we do baptism is the, f- the forging of covenant between us and Jesus. It's really, and we, and we take a vow just like you would as a, as a marriage vow that Jesus, I'm giving myself to you. And so we're reenacting the marriage covenant and it's part of that drama of the story of the church. And so why don't we stand together as we, as we worship and I'm going to invite the parents, you can head down and get your kids to bring them back up so that we can share this as a family and we're going to move into our, our time of baptism. And I want to offer an opportunity for anyone who might be here that, that says, you know what, I, I, I want to be part of this story that, that Jesus is telling in this people. And I've never come to him and given myself to him. Well, you can do that right now. And actually, if you do that, you can get baptized in the very next moment. And so if there's anyone here or watching online that, that, wants to respond to Jesus, Jesus is is tugging on your heart, you can come to him right now and just talk to him and say, Jesus, I'm sorry for how I've lived my life and and been disobedient and rebellious. Jesus, I want to turn back to you right now. Jesus, thank you that you are faithful to me. You've always loved me and you loved loved me enough to, to die for me. Thank you that I'm forgiven because you died for me. Lord, and today I want to give myself to you. I believe that you rose again from the dead so I could have a new life. Please give me your Holy Spirit and make me a new person right now. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.